Welcome to Ramplify, a student-centered, career-focused podcast hosted by the Center for Career Equity, Development, and Success at Suffolk University. This podcast is used to highlight the resources offered in the university's career center while amplifying the voices of everyone who contributes to our vibrant community. Just one look at Matthew Wilding's resume tells a story. From designing games to writing curated museum experiences, this Suffolk alum has always illustrated a passion for telling stories in his work. I recently had the chance to sit down with Matthew to learn more about his experiences since graduating in 2006, and I'm so excited to share this conversation with you all. Join me as Matthew takes us through the story of his career in this special episode of Ramplify. I'll introduce myself. I am the Associate Director of the Humanities and Arts Career Community in the Suffolk Career Center. So I work with students who are studying history and English and the arts and that sort of thing. And I help them to find careers and explore opportunities. My name is Matthew Wilding. I'm the Director of Visitor Experience and Content Development at Revolutionary Spaces, uh, which is the nonprofit historical organization that oversees the Old South Meeting House and Old State House on Boston's Freedom Trail. Great. All right. The first question here is, can you tell us a bit about your student experience? But I'd actually like to go right into your career since you just mentioned it. You're working at revolutionary spaces. But looking at your resume, you've worked everywhere from Zoinks Toy Store. <laughs> where, you... where did you find that? Is that still on the internet? <laughs> that's on your LinkedIn. Oh, man. That's that's old. <laughs> we do work with alums, by the way, if you want to polish up that LinkedIn profile. Great. But you, you worked at Zoinks years ago, but you've also worked in game design. You've worked at tour companies. You've worked at, um, you've done content development. So tell us a little bit about your winding path. Yeah, it's, it's funny. The the work I do sounds like it's a, a diverse list of different things, but I, I tend to end up doing very much the same thing in, in different places. As you mentioned, I, I worked at Zoinks Toy Store. I, in fact, started my toy job at F.A.O. Shores, the now defunct legendary toy store in, in downtown Boston. My first day there was actually 9-11, which was a Stressful day to start at a toy store. Interesting. I was recruited at Zoinks Toy uh, from by Zoinks Toy Store at, at FAO Shores in a rather unethical way, I guess, in retrospect. <laughs> and I went over to so I went over to Fanel Hall. Uh, I was in community college at the time. I was, I was studying at Bunker Hill Community College, and I had a great professor there named Richard Clayman, who was a great history professor and got me kind of hot on history. I did not intend to make a career in history at all, but I loved that class. Uh, I intended to go to film school and be a filmmaker like all idealistic 19-year-olds. And then there was an error in my housing in New York. And so I had to fall back to my safety transfer school, which was Suffolk University. There you go. Um, <laughs> and we're and lucky to have you. <laughs> thank you. Uh, which actually ended up great for me. But Suffolk doesn't have doesn't and didn't have a film department. And I liked history and, and didn't want to take another year off of college. I'd already taken off a year right out of high school. So I just kind of dove in and kept on working at a toy store and studying with Bob Allison. And the toy store had the novelty of being in a building that is itself historic, right? So it was in the the north building of Quincy Market, which is part of Fanel Hall Marketplace. So got to spend time in this major historical center that is also like a tourist mecca. So I got to learn a lot about tourism, got to learn about a lot about the history of the building and the history of the city while I was studying with Bob Allison, who is, I, is he going to listen to this? Oh, I'm sure he will. Okay, well, <laughs> turn your audio down for a second, Bob. So Bob is indisputably the best Boston historian in the city. And at the time, he had just written, I believe he had just written The Short History of Boston, which which had done pretty well. And he was getting kind of a reputation for himself, becoming kind of a, a respected figure in the field. And I just happened to show up right when that was happening. So I had this great a historian who was really getting a lot of attention and making a lot of connections. And he just thought I wasn't an idiot. Uh, so I spent a lot of time with him in his classes and, and he really guided me and directed me places. And at the same time at Zoinks Toy Store, we had a toy cart where we sold toy cars that was across from the Bostonian Society gift shop. And there was a tour guide who worked there in the winters uh, named Jeremy Murphy, who is, your listeners may know him as Jeremiah Poop. He's still out there uh, <laughs> screaming about poop. 
But Jeremy is this is this wonderful guy, another kind of institution in the Boston community. He he said, "Wow, you know, you you really know a lot about Boston history, and you're really loud. You'd probably be a good tour guide." <laughs> uh, so he recommended me right. to the Freedom Trail Foundation. Now, was he working at the? Is, is he a guide at the? He is. He's still a guide at the Freedom Trail Foundation. He may be the longest tenured guide there now. And he recommended me there. I served at the Freedom Trail Foundation first as a tour guide for almost 12 years, uh, for I guess six years as a tour guide, mm -hmm. and then about four or five years as their content director. And my boss there, this is a very long story you asked, sorry. My boss there, Mimi LaCamera, she eventually was like, you know, you, you, you should think about bigger things. And she recommended I apply for a job at the Kennedy Institute for the United States Senate, uh, which opened in 2014 in Dorchester. I did not want to work there. Heard things that uh, wasn't going well initially, you know, gossip in the field. And she said to me, there is very, very, low likelihood you'll ever get another chance to open a museum in your life. So I applied. I got what essentially was a coordinator job running a game, a 100-player, two, two-and-a-half-hour Senate game, which sounded terrible. Off just the worst idea, right? And I was very skeptical, but, you know, was trying to listen to a mentor's advice. And so I took the job, and I saw high school come in from Madison Park High in Boston really out of control in the lobby. I was like, I guess this is how I die. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and they came into the Senate chamber, full-scale replica of the United States Senate chamber in the middle of the building, and had 13 adults acting like they were their staff. And immediately you saw the kids switch and focus and get really into this legislation and build a better piece of legislation than the one we were simulating, uh, which was the Compromise of 1850, a terrible piece of legislation, mm. or two pieces of legislation, technically. And I was converted, and I, I was like, oh, games are a really good way to teach history. And that led to the game design work I've done and continue to do. Mm -hmm. Oh, okay. So with game design, then, it sounds like when you're doing your work, well, tell us, tell us a little bit about your day-to-day -day at Revolutionary Spaces. What are you doing? Where does this design thinking come into play? Yeah, at Revolutionary Spaces, I, I do kind of a lot of things. So I, I did do a lot of just game design work for a while. I worked for Gigantic Mechanic as a, a, a game writer with them. And then I also consulted with the Reagan Presidential Library Foundation side. But at Revolutionary Spaces, I came on board in 2020 in the height of the pandemic. They had just merged Old South Meeting House's Old South Association and the Bostonian Society, which operated Old State. And there were, but then there was a pandemic, there were subsequent layoffs. And so then they were just trying to figure out how to get the building open again. I'd known Nat Shidley, who is the director there since my time at the Freedom Trail Foundation. I'd sort of always wanted to work at, at uh, Old State. I just kind of love that building. And so they called me and essentially asked me if I could get the building back open on very, very short notice in the height of the pandemic. And I said, I'd, yeah, sure, I'd do that. So my central job initially was just basic operations of the building, getting the place open, getting the staff, getting them trained, getting them able to talk about history under the new mission of revolutionary spaces. Then after things settled, uh, we started to be able to focus on more product development. So that, that's the core of my job now, designing new exhibits, uh, designing new games, just launched a new game, a 40 player game called Revolution is Brewing, which is about the fallout of the Boston Tea Party and the subsequent co uh, coercive acts, which just won Game of the Year at uh, Games for Change in New York in July, uh, Civics Game of the Year. So I, I do a lot of managing a sizable staff on developing content. I do a lot of research myself. I do a lot of rewriting. That's a huge part of my job mm -hmm. is rewriting other people's research and making it all co cohesive and have a similar tone. Mm -hmm. And then I do a lot of training of other staff to interpret our sites and our and, and to uh, execute our programs. Mm -hmm. I'm curious, where did, when you talked about the game that mm -hmm. you developed, how does that come into play? Is that something, can people go to go and buy it at Zoinks, for example? Not or one at Zoinks of the other anymore, unfortunately. One, one of the other, Eureka, one of the other game stores around. Yeah, um, no, so the games that I design tend to be games that are, that are designed for schools, for school groups on site. So this game is a 40 player game that's played on tablets or cell phones. And then there's a central conductor account that our, our staff runs and the kids are given different roles and different points of views and different pieces of information about not just the people in Boston who took took part in the Tea Party, but people in Britain and people in other colonies and loyalists and, and, and moderates and enslaved people and women so that they can have a broader conversation about what the fallout of the Tea Party and the course facts actually looks like. Because, you know, we have this habit of simplifying things in museums, which makes sense. We have very limited time with, with our with our audiences. The fallout of major global events are complicated and there's a lot of points of view in them. So we try to represent as many points of view as possible and then essentially make them argue about different pieces of policy 
as they relate to the characters that they're presented with. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. That's, I, I would love to do that. Can grownups do that too? Uh, I would love to have Suffolk come over and play. We haven't done any public ticketed events. It's been schools only so far, but mm-hmm. uh, it's certainly on the, on the table. We, we actually, at the Kennedy Institute where I used to work, we did do a couple of ticketed versions of the Senate Emergent Module, which were all very, very fun. The great thing about being a tour guide or facilitating an educational game with adults as opposed to kids, kids are great and I love working with kids, but when you get to work with adults, they want to be there. <laughs> and you don't have to, yeah. there's no convincing. Uh, mm-hmm. like you, you can usually win a kid over pretty quickly, but you don't have to win an adult over. If they paid $20 to play a 90 minute game about the tea party, they're your audience already. You they're know? hardcore. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, tell us a little bit more about your student experience at Suffolk. You had Professor Bob Allison who said, he, he wrote a great email just talking about how he would arrive in class and you'd be sitting up on a chair facing the class and engaging your fellow students in conversation about the revolution. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he loves that story. Yeah, um, it's a good one. Yeah, it's true. It's funny. I have a different story about Bob uh, and, and my relationship with Bob and work, actually. So Bob got me my first job at the Freedom Trail, really. Jeremy recommended me. Bob put me over the, over the, uh, over the top. But he's been an instrumental part of my entire career. And I wanted to return the favor, and I continue to do this. I hire a lot of Suffolk students mm-hmm. and, and have over the years everywhere I've worked. But one of uh, the Suffolk students I hired, Lou Rocco, who I still work with now, I initially hired him at the Kennedy, and I, I dragged him along, along with me. He was a Suffolk student as well. And I called Bob, which I tend to do when I get a Suffolk app, like, who is this kid? What's his deal? And the way I remember it, I asked Bob, who is this Lou Rocco kid? And he said to me, oh, he's one of my top two best students ever. And then there was a pause. And then he said, and the other one was not you. Um, <laughs> which he insists he never said. I remember it pretty well. And then he said, well, don't get the, don't get, let, get the tr- let the truth get in the way of a good story. So I'm going to keep telling it. Mm-hmm. Uh, to answer your actual question instead of just a goofy anecdote. Uh, yeah, so I, I studied with Bob. He, I didn't actually study with him initially. Uh, my first semester, I had Bob Hannigan, who is recently retired. Fantastic. Uh, 20th century uh, historian who I adored, and John Cavana, who is like a legend in this place uh, in the history department. Very old man, kind of muttered to himself sometimes. He'd put up paper maps with masking tape, and he'd put the masking tape on his face while he was holding (laughs) the map up and then take the pieces of the masking tape off and put on the wall Mm -hmm. and just tell the most enchanting stories about whatever he was talking about. And I loved John, but John got ill when I, my first semester. And so a fill-in professor came in and that fill-in professor was Bob Allison uh, talking about the American Revolution. It was an American Revolutionary History class. And I immediately just loved Bob Allison. He's, he's so dry and he's he's got great delivery. He's got great timing and he's just so knowledgeable. So I spent a lot of time Immediately after that with him, Bob Bellinger was actually my thesis advisor. Bob uh, Bob Bellinger was fantastic. And then uh, Joe McCarthy was also one of my professors here. And Joe was great. I think that's all the history professors I had. I somehow never got to take a class with plot. Uh, (laughs) I don't know how that happened. Were you, did you ever do any extracurriculars? Did you volunteer? Did you do that sort of thing to get involved in the local historical community? I actually didn't do anything in historical volunteerism. So... I was uh, actually similar to a lot of students at Suffolk at the time. I'm not sure this is true anymore. But in 2003, this was very much still a commuter working school, working class school. And we had dorms and certainly a lot of my friends lived in them. And some of my friends lived in the North End and whatever. But, you know, I'm, I'm, I was a working class kid paying my own rent, uh, living off student loans. And so I had a job. So I worked I worked 40 or 50 hours a week at the toy store and the, the toy cart across from it. So I didn't have a ton of time for extracurriculars. I was involved in an organization that I believe is now defunct called Students for Beats and Justice. And, you know, this was the height of the Bush administration and the Iraq war. Incidentally, the way I found out Bob Allison was a conservative was uh, when I asked him to speak at an anti-war rally and he said no. <laughs> so I didn't do a ton of extracurricular activities except for Students for Peace and Justice on campus. Uh, and there we pretty much just organized protests and f- film showings of, you know, what, what, what I would now probably consider to be like liberal propaganda films, <laughs> uh, but good stuff. And it was it was a, a great community full of great kids. Mm-hmm. Well, and you also did. I, I liked how earlier in the in this conversation, you wove your Zoinks experience into history because you were in a historical building that you were learning about as you were working in it. So mm-hmm. it just gained all the significance. And a lot of students still do work full time yep. or more while they're here at Suffolk. So that's not that's not unusual. Right. 
It's still happening. And so if a student came to you and asked for advice, what what kind of advice would you give them? I mean, I, I guess it would depend on the question, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but I mean, just general career advice. I got a lot of feedback when I was in this school, when I, when I was studying history specifically uh, and planning to go to grad school, which I went to grad school. I did not complete grad school. Don't go to grad school, kids. That's my first piece of advice. A lot of people who have worked for me over the years have had graduate degrees. I do not. So that's, that's advice number one. But I worked in, I was working in toy stores and, and other, other jobs while I was studying history. And I was very clear that my intention was to work in history. I was told people, I'm going to go probably go to grad school, teach or something, but I'm going to work in history. And a lot of my friends who were in the field were like, mm, you're not going <laughs> to, you, you, nobody, nobody gets to work in history. No, you know, there's no tenure jobs anymore, which is true. There's not a lot of museum jobs. It pays terribly. You need unpaid internships. You need connections. I've never done an un- unpaid internship in my life. Uh, I always tell people not to. They're completely unnecessary and frankly pretty classist. But if you want to work in the field, the way to work in the field is to just be very clear that that's what you want to do and then show people why you're valuable. One of the things that kept on happening to me that I didn't realize was of value until a long time later when I was at the Freedom Trail was that before I started working in history museums, I was just loud and excited about history. And as it turns out, that's a rare skill in the field. Most people who study history are kind of quiet and, you know, kind of comfortable with uh, archival work. Uh, And I I like that stuff too, but I'm not as good at it as a lot of other people. I'm really good at very loudly telling a story and at least seeming like I'm super excited about it. And that's that's a skill set. So find the skill sets that are transferable in some way to the thing you're interested in and then show everyone how good you are at those things. And everyone's good at something. I met so many kids over the years at Suffolk, actually. uh, I come and talk to Suffolk history classes a lot who, you know, don't feel like they're like, oh, I can't do what you did. And that's true. Most people, almost nobody can do what one individual person does. Our our paths are all different, right? Of course. But they, they can find the opportunity that's put in front of them and then do the best they can with that opportunity. And then, yeah, some of it's luck. Absolutely. But a lot of it is just seeing an opportunity in front of you and then running with it. My big break that made my career was not at the Kennedy. I mean, that that's where I saw the thing that became the central part of my career. But the big breaks I had were one, being at in, in the toy store booth and talking about history with another guy who had an opportunity to get me a job in a history organization. And then at that organization, when I started at the Freedom Trail, they, they ran, I believe, three tours a day from Boston Common, 11 o'clock, a 12 o'clock, and a 1 o'clock. There were competing organizations at the time, too, but the foundation only had the three. And nobody wanted to do them because they paid way less uh, than the private tours with school groups. And with school groups, you, you don't have to sell. You can just show up 10 minutes before the tour. You have a 90-minute tour, and at the time, you get paid $70. Mm-hmm. which in you know 2003, $70 is a lot of money. I mean, it's not a small amount of money now for 90 minutes, but then it was a lot of money. You know, I was, I was working for $10 an hour at a toy store and that was considered great retail money. So $70 for that. The public tours, you had to show up a half hour in advance. So if you have a 11 o'clock tour, get got to get there at 10.30. Sell to the tourists who are walking by Boston Common for a half an hour, and then you only get $45 plus $2 for every ticket over 10 tickets, or it might've been 20, I think it was 10, which means to make as much money to, uh, as the school group, you'd have to sell, gosh, uh, so it's, uh, my math is bad because I have a history degree, but it's like 30 <laughs> tickets or something. It's it's a lot, but and then there's there's tips. Ooh. It's a lot more work, uh, and so no one wanted mm-hmm. to do it. So I did the 11, so I was like, I'll do it. I'll do the 11 and I'll do the one. And I was in my early 20s, so I uh, was in much better shape than I am now. So I'd do the 1030, I'd scream uh, as loud as I could scream for 30 minutes. I was in like hardcore bands when I was in high school. So I'd, I got pipes to yell and announcing this tour, make worked out jokes, worked out bits to, to do with Taurus. I'd be getting 50, 60 people on a tour. So that's like a hundred something dollars for an hour and a half. Plus the, the money they poured on me afterwards because they thought I was fun or funny or whatever. And then I'd run back and do the one o'clock. I'd literally sprint from Fanel Hall back to the Boston Common and do that tour. And that opportunity, which I took advantage of, 
led the foundation not only to value me, but also to recognize that there was actually a whole other market that we weren't addressing. So when I, again, when I started three public tours from Boston Common, when I left, we had 16 public tours every day. And that was over the course of 10 years because I had a supervisor, I had a, a manager who saw potential in me, trusted my opinions as someone on the ground, and then elevated me And because it was making her money. You know, it was making them money. And that opportunity led to me, ultimately my ability to tell the story I just told, which I can tell you with great confidence that that story has gotten me three other jobs. It's like, oh, I saw an opening, I took it, they made a lot of money. Great, you're hired. <laughs> Absolutely. And you know your value too, mm -hmm. which really helps. It's leading you to opportunities that you know you're going to be good at and mm -hmm. they know you're going to be good at as well. Uh, one point I would like to make is remember to tip your tour guides. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> it's important. So much money. 20s are totally reasonable, guys. Right. Totally reasonable. Um, <laughs> On the point you just made about knowing your worth, I, that's another great piece of advice that I, I'd love to extrapolate on for a second. Because I, I now when I do game design, and I, I do a really specific kind of game design, right? I do like talking mostly civics and history related games in museums and in schools. There's almost no one else on earth who does that, right? This is it's not a lot of people, which is not a brag. Like I didn't come up with it. I, I just stumbled into it and I was like, oh, this is fun. But when a client, my first ever client, contacted me to contract me to do that work, uh, as opposed to just doing it for my job. Uh, I called a colleague of mine, a gigantic mechanic, a guy named Craig Drefry, who is wonderful, teaches at NYU. And I, I told him, you know, like, if someone asked me to make a history game for them, I don't know what to charge. You know, it was like, I don't know, $25 an hour, $30 an hour, $50 an hour. And Greg said to me, if you don't do it, who are they gonna call next? And I said, I don't know, you maybe? <laughs> Uh, he said, yeah, well, I'm going to charge a lot more than that. So you should charge at least $100 an hour, which is a ludicrous number, right? That's crazy. That No, no one's going to pay that for a game, for a history game. And so I was super nervous about it. And I was like, well, all right, all right, I'll do it. And so I went back to the client and I, I, I kind of got cold feet and I was like, 95, we'll do 95. So it's not 30, not three digits. That <laughs> feels wrong. So I presented them with 95 an hour and they didn't even blink. They, it was great, it's great. And then years later, I was talking to the, the, man, the project manager of that same client. And she said to me, you know, we almost didn't take you. And I was like, why? And she's like, oh, cause you weren't charging enough. So we weren't taking, so my bosses didn't take you seriously. And I had to, I had to convince them that you were, that you could do it. But that just goes to show a number that seemed impossible to me, just absolutely insane was uh, was laughably low to this organization. So don't not only know your worth, but if you feel like a number is nuts, just say it anyway, because then they'll just say, well, we can't afford that. They'll never say, well, absolutely not, and then end the meeting. You know, they'll just be like, yeah. Right. We can do this. <laughs> well, and in your case, too, they would have negotiated with you anyway, because as you said, you're one of the only people who does this. Right. So they need you, <laughs> which is important to remember. Doing your research with your salary is really important, knowing your worth. And also, I like that. Just throw a number that's out there that's crazy, because what's the worst that can happen? They might say, well, no, but we can go a little, we yeah. can get close which is negotiation and that's fine. Yeah, read the room, right? Like, uh, you know, if, if, they, if you say a number and they, they're like, absolutely not, and storm out of the room, you weren't gonna get a number that you were willing to take anyway. <laughs> like, <laughs> There you go, <laughs> exactly. Um, so let me see if there are any other questions that, those are all of the questions. I just, w one thing I think is, is really interesting is there's a Sherlock Holmes game that's, mm -hmm. it's not for big classes or anything like that. It's just a game that people can play. And, I love it because it's like reading a book because the backstory in it is so intensive, but it also requires knowledge of history and that sort of thing. And as you're talking about your job, I was thinking about that. I was thinking about the level of storytelling that goes into what you do, the level of research. You know, you have to research all of the backgrounds of all of these characters who are in fact, I would imagine almost all, if not all real people. Yep, all real. Yeah. So where are you doing your research for this? Do you use primary sources, secondary sources? Do you just remember a lot of it? All those are, are all those are the answer. This reminds me of something Neil Gaiman says about writing. He talks about compost in your brain, essentially, like that everything that you read and everything that you do and everything that you watch, all is kind of composting in your in your noodle. 
uh, and eventually will, some of it will come out into this rich, earthy fertilizer. And I think that's true with a lot of these characters and a lot of these concepts and a lot of the tours I've developed over the years too. There is just stuff that you come across every once in a while and it just, some of it sticks with you really prominently. Some of it falls to the back of your head and then you come across something else and, and you're like, you make a connection. You're like, oh, that's gonna be great. You remember a story about a person that is related kind of in a tertiary way to the Boston Tea Party or the Boston Massacre or whatever. And then if you're making a game about the Boston Massacre or the Boston Tea Party, well, there's this side character that you remember from a book you read in 2010. Then you just flip back through and, and you, you find that character and then you go down the footnote rabbit hole and see if you can find anything else. Another example, another Suffolk specific example, example, a professor I failed to mention, Stephen O'Neill, who does not work here anymore, but he used to teach, he taught the first history of piracy class at this school, which is the sexiest class you can take, right? So filled up every semester. I was in the first class ever. It was at like eight in the morning. I believe it's the Archer building on an upper floor that only one elevator went to. So you had to get to the building by like 7.30 and it was still full every day because, or every every three days, because it was a class about piracy. And, and, and Stephen is a great storyteller. He's, he's, kind of, he's kind of a dork and he's like, you know, he has this really nerdy kind of vibe to him, but he loves what he's talking about so much that you just fall into it. And he told all these stories about these pirates, these pirate captains, and how almost all of them die in the gallows, except a, like a couple, like two of them in particular, Blackbeard and Black Bart who have no relation, different families. Blackbeard, you know, dies in this dramatic fashion in a battle with uh, with the British Navy where he allegedly kills like almost like over a dozen people and has like guns that he pulls out of his jacket and shoots people and then flips the guns over and hits the other guys in the head with them as Stephen told it, who knows if that's true. And then eventually he dies, he gets killed, his head's cut off. They put, they hang his head from the ship and they throw his body in the water and the the legend is that his, his body without the head swam around the boat or the ship. Uh, and then there's Black Bart Roberts, who is kind of a gentleman pirate who allegedly got a cannonball to the stomach and his last words were blow up the ship. I remember that those stories so vividly. And then finally, William Fly, who's killed in Boston in kind of a dramatic fashion and kind of makes a mockery of Cotton Mather. And those those three men have been percolating in my brain since 2004 or 2003. And I, I just started writing a comic book called Freehands, which is a historical pirate uh, comic about about Boston, where I just took pieces of all their stories and turned it into a comic that was that has been really well received because it's just been sitting in my head forever. So I guess the long the the short answer is you get it you get information you you get your information where you get it when you get it and then it's useful when it's useful. Absolutely, and and isn't Stephen O'Neill speaking about piracy yeah. in Boston on what is it September September nineteenth. On, on Zoom through Revolutionary Spaces, Lou Rocco will actually be moderating that. I will I will be out of town that day, but uh, it's gonna be a great panel. I'm devastated I won't be able to watch it live, but I'll certainly watch it as soon as I get in in the morning. Yeah, it's on my calendar. Um, something else that I was thinking about too as you were speaking is I love how you're, when people think of history careers, they think of research, they think of being in an archive, labeling China, or they think of archeological digs, or they think of teaching. They mm -hmm. think of think of teaching high school. They think of teaching, you know, teaching in college. But I love how your career has taken off in all of these different directions that most people don't think about when they think about a history career or even a, a you know, museum administration career. Mm -hmm. So there are all these different niches. And it sounds like you stumbled upon them based on your skill set. But what would you, how would you encourage students to open up their mind about what's possible with a history career? Yeah, that's a good question. The way people fall into their non-traditional history jobs, and really I think this is probably true of all jobs, not just history jobs. When you do not what is expected in your career, if you do something that ends up being very, very directly connected to what you wanted to do, but you never would have thought of it, usually that has something to do with something happening in front of you that just makes an opportunity that you didn't expect. So for me, in the game realm in particular, there, I, I was kind of, I got that job because I was sort of considered a showman at the time because of my tour guide work, which is funny because I didn't actually think of myself as a performer at all. And I used to be kind of 
pretentious about this, where I'd be like, mm, the actors aren't real tour guides, they're not real historians, uh, which is a stupid point of view that you should not hold. We historians are not special. We don't have special access. Uh, we just may have spent more time reading very specifically dull books. Um, and, and look, But everyone has access to the same archives pretty much, uh, and people can do great work without degrees. So anyway, that tangent notwithstanding, I would, uh, they, my, the vice president at the Kennedy, when I got there, used to refer to me as Hollywood Matt, which I didn't understand because I didn't want to be an actor. And I certainly didn't want to move to Hollywood, excuse me, to Hollywood. But when I got to the Kennedy, they essentially, because they thought of me as a performer, they let me create not just um, the con some of the content in the games, the mechanics of the game were designed when I got there, but they let me design the facilitation of the game. And I put a kind of big, personality touch on all the rooms and I hired people who had performance backgrounds as well as interest in history to make a show you know because these guys have they have to pretend they're senate staffers in a variety of times from like the mid-19th century to today and you know they have to play you know characters that are under consideration for nominations and they have to play the vice president of the United States and all these all these like uh, kind of strange not well-known government positions and that allowed me to create lots of fun, fun things. And those making those fun things and those fun characteristics of my game, or the game, made the game well regarded. It certainly wasn't the only thing, but I, I, for better or for worse, I got a lot of credit for it. And once I got a lot of credit for it, other people started asking me how to do it. And when people start to ask you questions regularly enough, you can start asking them for money. Uh, <laughs> it's called a consultant. <laughs> right. Uh, which, man, if you folks, if you can figure out a way to be a consultant, oh, be it. It, it is the best. I like my job very much. But man, being a consultant was fun. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That's a lot of a lot of freedom, a lot of flexibility. Yep. And you get to really focus on exactly what you love doing the most all the time. Yeah. Plus, when the project's over, you get to leave. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> which, which is very nice. Absolutely. So tell me about your these comic books that you're writing. Yeah. So uh, another thing that kind of percolated in my life forever, I, I always, I, I love comics. So like many, many young boys in the, in the 1990s, I, I am very old now. Um, I did not like to read when I was a child, which is funny now because a huge part of my job is reading uh, and writing, but I didn't like to read. Uh, I didn't like a lot of traditional books. I, I think I read one novel as a child. I read Treasure Island, which was great. Also appropriate. Totally then. appropriate. Then I, I got a copy of X-Men number 20, um, which in retrospect, reading it now, it's like a soap opera. It's ridiculous. I can't believe I liked it. Uh, but I loved it. And it got me re really into comics. And I was reading all the time. And my mom was really worried because she grew up in the 60s and 70s when comics were considered something that murderers read. And that's how they learned how to be psychos or something. I don't, I don't understand the hostility towards comics. And then I, I mentioned Neil Gaiman earlier. Uh, when I was probably 11 in the Walpole Mall, I picked up an issue of his comic, Sandman, which was not a superhero comic. There's actually a TV show of it right now, but uh, it's old comics from the 80s and early 90s. It's not a superhero comic, and it's kind of a horror comic, you know, the, the issue I had gotten. And I read it and was like, oh, you can do this with this medium? And I was just amazed. And it really stuck with me and, and guided me through the process of learning to become a reader, which now, now I love to read. It's one of my favorite things to do. And I'll, you know, I read very, very dense, very, very uninteresting documents and, and histories now, as well as, you know, novels and, and com uh, comic books. So I love comics. And so I always wanted to make one. And during, uh, right, right before the pandemic, I started being like, yeah, I'm going to do that. And then the pandemic happened. And, uh, uh, like all everyone else baked bread and I uh, I wrote my first comic it was called Nightmare Man and it sold really well initially I, I self-published it through Kickstarter and then a publisher bought it afterwards and hit shelves a couple months ago and performed well enough that they are still letting me pitch to them and uh, then I did a collection of shorts uh, called Small Bites recently and then just a few weeks ago I, I put out uh, Free Hands which is a six issue pirate series that is very very historically entrenched in Boston Nightmare Man was very much about being being scared as a child it's about a, a guy I thought I saw when I was a kid uh, so like a horror story very personal to me Small Bites was a collection of just write, trying to write some horror stories and sci-fi stories and fantasy stories. And then uh, Free Hands is really the story I always wanted to write and didn't feel ready to write yet. So. Hmm, interesting. Yeah. Wow. Well, that's 
all very interesting. I love the direction that your career, because now that you're selling comic books, that's part of your career too. <laughs> yeah, it's weird. I'm, I'm really surprised I'm not hemorrhaging money doing that because it's it's not a cheap endeavor. But <laughs> if you're, yeah, if you're, if, I know for the listeners who are history, history degree people, we obviously, we obviously all get into this for the money because really great paying field. <laughs> so by all means though, if, if you do pursue a history degree and then a history job, pick up another like separate thing that also is incredibly expensive and doesn't have any hope of making a lot of money in return. That's a really just solid move. Right. <laughs> <laughs> we'll definitely encourage all the students to do that in the yeah. career center. Pick a career path and a hobby yeah. that are, or a secondary career. You know, I, I realized that I just joked about that, but it is worth saying that like, we can do like every I we all joke in his in in the history in the history department when I was in college like oh yeah like I, I got a history degree because I wanted a job that made no money and the theater department was full or something like that but the truth is is that you can make a career in all of this I very definitely made a good career in history I, I do really well in this field I don't do what I thought I was going to do <laughs> at all uh, and frankly I think I probably would have been bad at the, th at the thing I thought I was going to do uh, but I'm good at the thing I do do. And there's a real real career there. Like I have a very, uh, I'm pretty pleased with with my career trajectory. Plus I have the added benefit of, you know, working for nonprofits uh, and getting a little bit of control over the kind of work that I do. I get to I get to sell storytelling and and history histories that I think are important and historical fictions that I think are important in in some cases. And I don't feel bad about anything I do. And I don't think that's true for a lot of people, like a lot of people who have good careers and a lot of people who don't have good careers, they're still going to work and doing things that they don't feel awesome about. I feel great about everything I do. <laughs> Absolutely. And that's a really good way to live your life. Yeah. Yeah. And one that pay translates to money. Like mm -hmm. it doesn't translate to money for me. It translates to money for people who do that. Like if you just do, I, I don't love the phrase, follow your passion. It feels kind of corny, but do what you think you can do and that you want to do because this is what you have to do for the rest of your life or at least for the time being. Right. So make sure you don't hate it. <laughs> well, you know, something else I was thinking too is not everybody necessarily can take this, would take the same skills that you're using and use them in history. They might use them in another field. And <laughs> if you study history because you love history and enjoy it and think about those skills that you're using, like critical thinking and problem solving and communication and that sort of thing. All of these things that you use, and you can apply them to a lot of different types of fields. And you know, maybe you're you want to work for an organization where you make more money. You know, you might want to put it into project planning at a at a corporation or that sort of thing. But there are a lot of these transferable skills. And my guess is if you weren't in history, you'd be using a lot of these same skills that you use now in different ways. Yeah, I mean, if I wasn't in history, I'd probably be a, I'd probably be a hermit or some some locked up in a house in the woods or something. That I have a hard time seeing that. Yeah. <laughs> They'd hear you from miles away. Well, that's why I'm in the house stories. is because I'm not allowed in the city center anymore. That reminds me, using the history degree for other things. So obviously, I, I certainly used my degree for something adjacent, right? There are very few things I've done since college that don't make sense on my resume. Like, oh, yeah, that guy ended up in those, those places. That makes sense. The strangest job I took was the Peabody Essex one, which, as you can see by my, my length of, of service there, it's a lovely museum, but it was not the right place for me. Uh, it's an art museum. I'm not, I'm not an art guy. <laughs> but uh, there are, for other people who see opportunities that are not the opportunities I identified for myself, there are a lot of ways to translate history degrees into other things. And for those of us who have been paying attention to the trajectory of higher learning in general, the decrease in history majors nationwide is astounding. I mean, it's like, I think it's like 40 or 50% decrease since 2008 or 2010. That means there's a lot fewer history degrees in the world than there used to be, which is bad for history departments, but it's pretty good for history majors because there it's true there also aren't a ton of jobs uh in the field that are specifically history related and very obviously like you gotta you get a history degree and then you go do this but there these museums exist 
right? Like these institutions exist, these tour companies exist, these archives exist, and they will continue to employ people. And more and more, they will continue to employ paid people because within our field, it is more and more being, if not accepted, at least considered that unpaid internships are unethical and classist and lead to the same kind of group of upper middle class white people ruling all of these orgs and that's not sustainable so there are all of these opportunities and fewer and fewer and fewer people to do them so in when you're when you're if you're in a history degree right now when you're 40 and people like me are 60 65 years old and retiring we're all leaving directorships and stuff and you know or executive positions or whatever and those opportunities aren't going to just go away. And there's way less people than there were when I was going for them uh, wow. who have the traditional qualifications. There may be other qualifications by then. but okay. And this way of thinking is useful in other places. So, you know, you can translate your history, your your knowledge of, of research and of history and of project planning and of archival research into other things like, you know, writing and 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 corporate research. And there's tons of different applications. You just got to find your application. Exactly. Exactly. All right. Well, I think I can't think of any other questions. Great. <laughs> is well, there anything else you want to say as a closing I just, closing uh, statement? I answered thirty or forty questions per sent per sent uh, twenty page great. sentence. <laughs> no, I, I don't have a ton else to say except you know I I really do appreciate my time at Suffolk. I, I do really appreciate the school. I, I hire a lot of Suffolk students. I make jokes about it because I believe in nepotism, but that's that's not true. I believe I, I believe that Suffolk, uh, their history department specifically, tends to produce good students, and I I believe the word of the professors that I know here, and I and I respect and admire quite a few of them, both the, the, the professors that I had and the ones who have come after who I've had the privilege of meeting. I guess I'm going to go on a, a mild uh, aside about the perception of Suffolk versus what I consider the reality, which is that you know Suffolk is perceived as kind of a a not top tier school, right? It's a working kids school that was founded by a guy who thought that there should be law schools available at night for working class people because Harvard wouldn't let them go. And that's true. This is a this is not, you know, a, a top ranked school or whatever. But I know tons of people from Suffolk who are very successful and have done really great work. And I know tons of people who went to Harvard who do not do well. The thing that Suffolk offers that that I'm not sure is true of a lot of larger schools is that Suffolk really is as good a school as you feel like making it. If you want to commit to your work and you want to be good at this, whatever this is, my experience here, certainly with Bob Allison and Bob Bellinger and, and all my other professors is they took notice of the fact that I really wanted to be good at this. And then they elevated me. Bob Allison has opened dozens of doors for me and i know that's his reputation right is that everyone loves bob because bob knows everybody but and we all we all talk about bob but bob wasn't the only one who did that like all of these people have have been invaluable to me on a variety of different in instances i i've invited a number of them to speak uh at organizations i've worked at for little or no money i've sent articles to them and ask them, you know, their thoughts on the arguments I've been trying to make. I've, you know, I've run tour concepts by them and been like, does this narrative make sense? You know, they and no, never has a has a Suffolk professor from the history department, a philosophy professor once did, uh, but none of the history department professors ever dismissed me rudely or otherwise. They always answered my questions. They're always willing to meet up for a cup of coffee or a, or a sandwich and talk through an idea. It's a fantastic organization, in part because it's so small. I suspect because people don't take it as seriously as maybe they should. Right, I agree. I mean, I think the, the, the faculty here, and I think everyone who works at Suffolk, we all really care about the students and we care about helping them succeed. And our students work really hard. Yep. They work really, really hard and they want to do well and they love what they're being introduced to in classes. And yeah, it, good. I might be naive and it's very possible that I am, but and I'm aware that there are bad professors in the world 
and I'm aware that there are bad administrators and I'm aware that there are bad people in music or quote unquote bad people in museums uh, who don't care about what they're doing. Right. There must be because there's a lot of bad colleges and a lot of bad museums in the world. And, you know, most of us have seen some of them in our in our lives. But I tend to to govern my work on a belief that there's no reason to do this stuff if we don't care about it. I, I don't I don't work for institutions or take contracts with organizations uh, who I don't believe in or at least uh, who I at least don't respect. I have certainly worked with organizations I don't fundamentally agree with, but I always respect their work and, and believe that they're coming in good faith. I think that's very true of my staff. Um, I believe that they're there because they care about it. Uh, I mentioned that because so many of them are Suffolk students. About a quarter of my staff are Suffolk students. But I think that's true of Suffolk's faculty as well. And that may have been a legacy of having gone here that I didn't realize that I, I knew until this conversation that they set an example of this isn't a glamorous job. You know, it's not, you don't go to a cocktail party and say, I'm a professor at Suffolk University. And that people go like, whoo, well, let's circle up around this fella. And likewise, you know, I don't work for the Smithsonian. I did work, you know, for the Kennedy Institute and the cachet of that name definitely had a different feel than the cachet of saying, I work for Revolutionary Spaces, or I work at the Old State House. But I'm thrilled about the work I do at Old State House, uh, just like I was thrilled at the work that I did at the Kennedy, Kennedy Institute. Being proud of your work and, and believing that it's important is huge. And the faculty here does that. And that's what makes an organization like Revolutionary Spaces special. And I have to say, I really enjoyed looking at the website and exploring all the things that are going on there and you know, just realizing that it's more than just taking tours of a couple of historical buildings in Boston. There's a lot of going a lot going on. And I like the attitude towards learning about history and making it fun and making it interesting and putting passion into it and saying, hey, I think this is fascinating and here's a way I'm going to present it so that you will too. And I really like that. I think it comes through when you look at the information that's on the website. Yeah, we're really lucky right now. And this is this is also something that's going to be true for, for Suffolk graduates is that we're incredibly lucky right now that the guard in Boston history is changing really fast. And I think that's probably true in a lot of museums, but you know, the Freedom Trail and its, you know, universe uh, is kind of an old staid thing, right? It's it's been operated by many of the same people for a really long time. And that's not to take any credit from those people because those I hear people be like, oh, you dated X, Y, and Z is dated and you know, really needs to be updated. Like this is an old narrative. The things that the people who are running Freedom Trail sites in the 1970s and 1980s did were ground shaking at the time. They really were. Uh, and some of the work that was done in the 90s was really great. And like the work that was influenced in a lot of these museums, including one of my, including one of my buildings that was done by like Alfred Young, who studied working class people and really changed the way we thought of like the Stamp Act riots and, and the Boston Tea Party. That work is really great. But there, there is a tonal change that is happening right now because a lot of people are starting to retire. Because, you know, when you get a job at one of these places, you don't leave because it's awesome, <laughs> you know. So now we're starting to see new and young executives. Uh, and by young, I don't mean super young. I mean, they're usually in their 40s and 50s. And then you ha have directors and, and manager level people in their 20s and 30s who have big and different ideas about what these places can be and what they can mean. And we are in a moment right now where the world cares about how we interpret these spaces and, and what they mean and why they should be here or if they should be here. So for all the people who are looking graduate the bar down the barrel of graduation right now and like what their career is going to entail, their career, just like the careers of those people in the 70s and 80s who we now think of as having dated ideas, who at the time they did incredibly innovative work, that's what these guys get to do now. It's like, you're walking into these these buildings that want to completely redefine themselves. Revolutionary Spaces has been fantastic in that we've been on the forefront of, of, of articulating that in Boston. But other sites have been doing it too and doing great jobs. Old North Church is doing a fantastic job trying to modernize their narrative. So some of the steps Paul Revere House has made over the past few years have been great. The, you know, the merger itself of Revolutionary Spaces was an incred incredibly bold move. The Freedom Trail Foundation, where I used to work, they've, they've made some big steps on what they want to talk about and what they're willing to talk about. The African Meeting House on Beacon Hill does great work. Fanel Hall, the National Parks in Fanel Hall. I can list every site. Everyone's done something really great. And the confluence of new ideas 
and access to cheap technology is allowing us to do things that no one ever would have imagined 10 years ago. And that's awesome. It's so exciting. So come, come on board. Don't give up, folks. Get a whole career over here. <laughs> Excellent. And I know a big, you know, one of the big drives right now for the whole museum industry and cultural institutions is diversity, you know, mm -hmm. making sure that diverse stories are told, hiring people, you know, also, like you mentioned, the the moving towards paying interns, mm -hmm. because that is the equitable thing to do. You know, you want to make sure that you can support people who didn't initially have access to these two interning at these institutions. Mm -hmm. So those are some of the trends that I'm seeing. Would you agree? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think all those things are true. And I think that the, for, from my point of view, and, and I come at this both as kind of a guy, I, I'm a director, but I'm certainly more on the ground than a lot of directors are. Like I, I, I spend a lot of time in my galleries. I, I launch my programs when, when they start. I want to make sure they work because I don't want to make people do something that doesn't work. And so I think that the, the the big first step for a lot of these orgs is to, you know, one, first and foremost, create opportunities where the pipeline is different. And this isn't just about, you know, race. It's about gender, economic uh, group. It, it's about a lot of things. Like we can't keep telling stories and, and, and expanding our stories to include lots of people if we can't figure out how to include those people in our own in our own staff. So creating a pipeline that includes you know paid internships, entry level opportunities for for people's people that are not rich is is super important because the one thing we definitely cannot do anymore is to ask people to work for six months to a year for free so they can get their first fifteen dollar an hour job and then maybe if they're lucky get a thirty five thousand dollar a year job in three years. It's not sustainable in a city as expensive as Boston. And then, yeah, and then bring on more voices to build the interpretive experiences and not try to dictate what those experiences are. That part, I think, is the hardest part for the institutions is that that transition is going to take a really long time. You know, we can't just be like, well, we want to tell more diverse stories. And then from our almost entirely white, uh, educated upper class pedestal, dictate what those things are. It's wild. It's wild. I actually, uh, you know, I've been I've been kind of mocked for for being uh, for being a diversity hire because I'm from a lower class background and I'm and I'm a guy, which is super rare in my, in my field, which is obviously not true. Uh, like, uh, um, it's just uh, it's just a thing that's said a lot because the 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 character like the, the 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 vast majority of the people in our field are upper class white people from the suburbs who are from relatively good colleges and that is a perspective of value absolutely but it's not the only perspective and it's certainly not the perspective that's going to give the most insight on to how people who are not from those backgrounds view what we do so right. that that work is it's really hard it's really important it's going to take a really long time uh, i would also say to young folks who are looking to get into actually working on museum, in museums and historic sites this is this is where if you've, if you've ever looked at a site and thought, that place isn't for me because it doesn't represent you for, for any variety of ways, uh, you feel like it's it's a white guy's club or it's about rich people or it's, you know, or it's about women or it's about black people and you're not, and you're not black. You feel like that doesn't, that means that you, it doesn't speak for you. All of these sites can speak to the American experience. That's why they exist. And our job is to figure out ways to talk to as many people as possible about why these places matter and can matter to them. There's a reason, I, I keep on making this analogy, there's a reason that the Haitian Revolution quotes Jefferson. And it's not because Jefferson supported the Haitian Revolution. It's because Jefferson had an idea and American, uh, American revolutionaries had an idea and then they lost control of that idea and it became an idea in the world. And then the world got to do things with that idea. And all these places can do that. And all these young people who are coming into these places now who may feel like, oh, this place isn't for me. It's not for you yet because you're not there. But come and make it for you. Thanks for listening. Check out our website at suffolk.edu slash career center and follow us on social media at suffolk underscore careers. <laughs>